Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So Revelation 19, reading uh, from the verse number 1. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God and sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that feared him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. I trust again by now that you are comfortable with the statement that a prominent theme in this book is the security of the people of God. Of course, that security is connected uh, with the success of Christ. The church is secure because the Christ is successful and victorious. But as this book is written, the church is suffering in times of great persecution. And when you read the seven letters, the seven churches, you read language of weakness and trouble and trial. And really the Lord motivating and stirring up the church to press on and to persevere even though the way is difficult. And so the whole book has really those notes through it all uh, that we would read it and see within ourselves. We must press on, we must persevere because the church is safe and secure because Christ is victorious. But yet, of course, as you read uh, these words, you're reading several occasions where the church clearly is suffering greatly in the world. You think of the various enemies uh, that are amassing against the church. You turn back to chapter 17 and the verse number 6, and you will see a description there of Babylon, and how Babylon is that mother of harlots, the abominations, and what's that woman doing? Verse number 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You're seeing Babylon as, again, that which is against the people of God. Again, the system that is against the Lord's people and seeking to destroy the Lord's people. Similarly, chapter 18 and the verse number 24, after the description of the fall, the destruction of Babylon, it is said, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. 
And so Babylon is presented as an enemy of the people of God. And you go back further, chapter 13, the verse number 7, uh, you'll see there the beast is presented as an enemy. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And again, here's the beast making war against the saints. And go back one more chapter to chapter 12 and... You'll see the, 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 the dragon described there. And of course, the dragon there, verse number 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast onto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So you're seeing this really a gathering of all forces under, of course, under the supervision of the devil. And the world, in all manner of manifestations, is seeking to destroy the church of Christ. How can the church be safe? Now, of course, I'm going to leave aside some of the very particular interpretations that people may espouse for these things, but in general say that the devil is orchestrating political and religious forces against the true people of God. And you see both of those strains in these language, in this language, you get political and religious forces, but under the devil's supervision, they're against the true people of God. You see, the church is under constant attack. True for the church in the first century, true for us now, true for church as an institution, and true for individuals, because what is a church? But a body of individual believers who are seeking to overcome and to serve Christ Jesus. So how will they overcome these onslaughts? How will you survive? If things continue to decline in this nation, it may get more and more difficult to be a faithful child of God. How will you overcome these onslaughts? Well, of course, only by grace. Only by God's grace. But the grace that is guaranteed because of the security of all of God's people in Christ, and that security is again a reminder that the church shall indeed overcome. So you have the encouragement then of chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. There's no doubt that this will happen. There's no possibility that this will fail to come to pass. The encouragement is of the triumph as the marriage of the Lamb comes, and the bride and the Lamb are together for all eternity. You see, the whole chapter, all of chapter 19, it really has that theme of the triumph of Christ and therefore the success and the joy of the church. It begins with heaven's joy as Babylon is judged. Chapter 19 in the opening verses, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which they corrupt the earth with their fornication, and have avenged the blood of his servants at her hands. Christ triumphs. He will avenge all those who are against the church of Christ. They will suffer as those who have followed the beast in all of his ways. And so Babylon is judged. The chapter then ends with the defeat of the dragon and the false prophets. Verse number 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophets that wrought miracles before him. By the way, that's why I say these are religious and political forces coming together to deceive and destroy the church of Christ, but they will not succeed. 
Not in this age, nor in the final age, just before Christ's return. And though deception will be great, it will not be possible for the church to be deceived by the false prophets. Can't happen. Church is safe and secure in Christ Jesus. And so you get to the end of chapter 19, and you find, well, these individuals, this, these entities, whatever the case may be, they are defeated by Christ himself. If you go into the next vision, the next set of visions in chapter 20, you'll see that two, the false prophet and the beast, is out of the devil, verse number 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. The triumph of Christ. And so in that setting, in the general setting of the triumph of Christ at the last day, we have the joy of heaven as the church is glorified and glorious. And so you see here this picture of a marriage feast. The marriage of the Lamb is come. And so this is very significant. And I want to tell you, this ought to be significant to you right now, tonight. Because whilst this looks to the future, it looks to the final consummation of all things, it tells us about the heart of Christ for his church now. What we see looking ahead gives us a clear indication of what is true regarding Christ's heart for his church and for his people now. So in view here, there is a marriage. It is called the marriage of the Lamb, and that's what we're going to consider tonight. So first of all, please note the practice. We've got to look at this in its cultural setting. We've got to view this marriage not in the light of our modern Western practices, but in light of the Eastern practices of marriage. Again, in different Western countries, there are various different customs and ceremonies and procedures. And I suppose the heart of a pastor is that the center of the marriage would be the exchange of those vows in the presence of God. That, that would be the very core of the marriage ceremony. That's the important part. But there, there are other, of course, other celebrations and ceremonies that are part and parcel of such an event. But the custom of weddings at the time of writing of Revelation must govern how we understand these things. And we can't insert our cultures into this. We've got to understand their culture and then draw lessons from those images. We need to remember the Bible was written, of course, again for an audience at that particular time. So what happens first? Well, first of all, there was a public betrothal of a couple between two families. Now, this is more than an engagement. We know that in part because of the circumstances around Christ's birth and Mary and Joseph. There was a, a legal binding nature. Joseph had to put Mary away. There's a, a binding covenantal arrangement at this initial stage of betrothal. You think even how Paul describes the church in Corinth, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. A sense of the solemnity, even referring to the husband, even prior uh, to the, what well, we might term the marriage itself, but in that espousal arrangement. But what happened next is significant. After the public betrothal, there was an interval. There was a period of time well, to prepare things and sometimes to pay a particular dowry uh, to, again, for the bride. You think of Jacob. 14 years. 
Seven years times two. And again, the arrangement had been made, the betrothal had been arranged, but there was a time period between, uh, again, that arrangement and the final marriage, uh, seven years times two. And so in that time interval, there was then a following. After that time was concluded, the groom would then lead the bridal procession to the bride's house. And after that, there were various things may happen, depending on distances and such things, as to where the feast was held. But again, the groom led, led this procession to the bride's house. In the meantime, she made herself ready. The groom arrives and takes the bride back again to his house ordinarily for feasting. And a celebration then takes place that can last even for a week or more in some circumstances. And so when you get to the feast described here in Revelation, you're getting to the joy, the delight, the celebration of the marriage. It is the final triumph. Everything has come to pass. Uh, now this is, a, this is a consummated relationship between the bride and the groom and the fullness of joy and fellowship and all the delights of marriage. That's the picture here. And so it says here, the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's been waiting for, it's been expected, and now it has come. So that's the practice view, the cultural setting. Note secondly then the parties in view here, the parties in view. And of course, in a marriage there are two parties. The groom, here referred to as the lamb. Now, of course, by now you'll understand the lamb in Revelation refers to Christ. Turn you back, of course, to chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and then the lamb... As it had been slain, the one standing in the midst of the elders, in the midst of the throne. The lamb that is Christ slain. That's the key clue. And of course we know from John's other writings, even referring to John the Baptist, that Christ, the lamb of God, takes away, bears away the sins of the world. The same lamb, the same Christ, the same Jesus is the lamb in view here in Revelation chapter 19. Again, as the Baptist said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, he's the friend of the bridegroom. Hence Christ himself is the bridegroom. So first party, the groom. Second party, the wife, the bride. And of course the church here is viewed as the bride of Christ. Is the bride of the Lamb. You see that later on in this book. And of course that refers even back to the language of Paul in Ephesians. The great mystery, discussing marriage, but he speaks concerning Christ and the church. So these things, I think, are well known. I don't need to elaborate upon that. We have these two parties in the wedding. One, of course, is the groom, Christ himself, the lamb, and the other referred to as, again, the wife. And that, of course, is a reference to the church of Jesus Christ. So Christ comes to receive his bride, the bride that has made herself ready. But if that's the practice and the parties, well, what are the principles that are then applied? What are the principles that are implied in all of this imagery? Well, to help us think about that, let me ask you a question. What hope do you have of being present at that feast? What confidence do you have that one day you'll be part of the wife that is present when the marriage of the Lamb is come? Well, there are principles that flow from the use of this marriage imagery, and these principles, they enforce our confidence now. 
what we see in the future enforces and encourages confidence in our hearts tonight. Oh, it does describe the joy and the blessedness of the feast then, but the anticipation of that fellowship and the image of that fellowship encourages our hearts even now this evening. And it does so in four ways, four principles that should encourage our hearts tonight. First of all, Christ has covenanted himself to his bride. Christ has bound himself covenantally to the bride. We're bound to Christ. I think one of the most significant verses I often refer to in terms of marriage is Malachi chapter 2 and the verse number 14 refers to marriage and the wife as thy companion, the wife of thy covenant. This kind of covenantal arrangement that exists in the context of marriage. And Christ will never, ever break his covenant. He will never fail to keep his promises. He's sworn by his own name, if you like. He's sworn by the very character of God to keep his promises. And if he breaks covenant, he fails to be God. That's how serious this is. God incarnate will faithfully keep his promises and will never, ever forsake his church. No dragons rage and beasts and prophets deceive. The love of Christ for his church is unbreakable. And his commitment is such that he will not allow his church to succumb to the evil of this present age. And the evil of all political and religious forces, these things will not destroy the relationship between Christ and his church. He has covenanted himself to his bride. Secondly, he has purchased to himself his bride. And we sang the hymn, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. The price, if you like, the dowry has already been paid. There is no possibility of him failing to do what's required to secure the bride. He's already done everything required to secure the bride and to make sure that wedding feast happens with great joy. Secured already. Loved covenantally. We can say that as a church. We've been loved by Christ covenantally. But then he's given himself to secure the bride and again, you think of the language of Ephesians chapter 5 and the verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The love's there. And out of the love comes the action. That's the most important type of love. Gushy love that speaks words of love without actions really worth nothing. The words are important, but they must be backed up with actions. And Christ has given us words of love. He's spoken to us. He loves his church, but he's backed up his words with the actions of even giving himself for our redemption. And we know the love of Christ by his actions. And so the suffering church is secure because the purchased possession, the purchased possession is indeed the bride. The church is secure because the one who has paid that purchased possession is indeed the conquering Savior. You know the lamb that's referred to in Revelation chapter 19 is also the one that sits upon the horse in Revelation 19 verse 11. 
faithful and true, judging and making war with eyes as flames of fire and heads of many crowns. His name is called the Word of God. The Lamb of God is the Word of God, is the groom of the church. And the groom on the horse is the one who comes and conquers all enemies. He's, he's paid for the church with his blood. He's, he's not going to forsake the church when it comes to that final day. He's not going to allow anything to take the church from him. No one can triumph over the church. It's not possible because he's paid for the church with his blood. That's the imagery here. Well, there's much that we can't grasp. Many things that are beyond our comprehension. There are certainly various metaphors being used in different ways. But we are caused to see time and time again the triumph of Christ. No matter who the beast is or how Babylon rages, the bride of Christ will spend eternity with the groom, Christ himself. And tragically, so many people, they get tied up in knots. What's Babylon? What's the beast? What do all these things mean? And are they present right now and here today? And they miss the triumph of Christ, the one upon the horse, conquering all his enemies. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't think about these things. I'd say the very opposite. We should think carefully about these things. But as we think about the challenges of the text, don't miss the clarity that Christ triumphs and the church is finally secure. He battles to take to himself the bride that he has bought. We belong to Christ and he will not lose us to any opponent. Thirdly, Christ has provided the garments for the bride. So we're looking at these various principles that undergird the security that we enjoy. Christ's covenant, Christ's blood, he's paid the price. And thirdly, he has provided the garments for the bride. If you like, in terms of our security, and there is no possibility that the church will not be suitably attired. Now, verse number 7 has, again, caused some confusion. And there are certainly things that I have read that have been disappointing regarding their language regarding verse number 7. Uh, oh, they take the action of the wife here. The wife hath made herself ready. And they take the reference to the righteousness of the saints. And therefore see some sort of synergy between our works and Christ's work finally securing our salvation. Oh yes, they may say that our works do not contribute to our justification, but they contribute to our final glorification. Such is adding works to Christ and is very, very dangerous. Oh yes, works prove the reality of our salvation, but they do not contribute to your acceptance with God in any time, now or then. You see, what you're seeing here is, you've got to remember Eastern culture. When it says the bride has made herself ready, that is suggesting and reminding us that the bride is wearing garments that she does not provide. In that culture, the garments are provided by the groom. The groom provides the garments which the wife then wears. And so verse number 8 says, And to her was what? Granted. In the very text itself, it implies that very same principle. That there was a grant to her of the garments that she would wear. Now, back in chapter 7 of Revelation, there is somewhat different language being used, but the similar thought is there. Verse number 14, regarding the triumph of the church there. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Robes again mentioned, but the cleansing of the robe is through Christ's work. Their robes are washed, washed in the blood. Here, robes are given. And we're told their identity. The robes are the righteousness of the saints. Could that be our works in view? No, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And thence we see here that these are the works of Christ on our behalf. Jehovah, Sekenu, the Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verse number 6. Or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Christ is made unto us righteousness. And so for the righteousness of the saints to describe Christ's righteousness is completely consistent with the rest of the Bible. He provides all of our righteousness. And thus we stand accepted on that day. We are legitimately part of that wedding celebration because we've been forgiven, our debts are cleansed, and we've been given a righteousness, not our own. That is our final acceptance. So how does the bride make herself ready? Well, by faith, the bride puts on the garments provided by Christ. You see, is there any doubt that we can stand before Christ on that day? There's no doubt at all. Everything has been provided for us to be his glorified groom. You see, if you're wrestling with assurance and wrestling with doubt, this is where you go. That your faith, though it may be weak, is faith in Christ and weak faith in Christ. Is that faith whereby we make ourselves ready? Of course, even that faith is a gift. And we recognize even that comes to us from God. And you see, this marriage feast, how can we be there in that marriage feast? Because our worth is in Christ alone. Well, finally, why can we be certain that we're secure in that day? Well, because Christ ensures our presence at the feast as well. Verse number 9 of Revelation, there's a shift of attention. It says, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Called. Speaks of God's work being done in us. It has this idea in the tense of a work that was done in the past, but the effects continue. And the idea is that we have been called by God's grace and that calling draws us all the way into heaven itself. We're drawn to confidence in Christ and that confidence does not fail. We go all the way to be with Christ forevermore. We're called. It's all of God. It's all of grace. To God be the glory. And so this scene, this marriage scene, it's a future prospect, future anticipation the triumph at the end of the age, the glories of communion with Christ forevermore. But the language used brings us much comfort as to how Christ feels about his church even today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. 
A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.